Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is television dialogue editor Jason Brennan. But first of all, the record labels are coming back with an old friend, the compilation album. Yeah, we thought they're dead and gone, mostly because physical product is pretty much dead and gone, but the labels are frustrated with playlists, and mostly the playlists on Spotify because they're curated. So Universal Music is releasing its own playlists, and they're calling them compilation albums. And you can find these on the Appears On section of Spotify. And mostly these pertain to broad moods or events. There's not much curation, it seems. So little, in fact. There's one that's called 2019 Mix, but there's no music on it from 2019. They're also trying to capitalize on artists that aren't on their own roster. For instance, there's a couple of very interesting compilations. One is called Old Town Country Road, and of course, that's very much like Old Town Road. And another one is Hot Girl Summer, and of course, both of the artists that did these are not on that label. So they're trying to follow something that actually started quite a while ago by a Stockholm-based company called X5, And the idea was, let's create albums for the digital market. They had an initiative to try to do 50 albums a month. 50 albums a month. But again, these are playlists that we're talking about. At least they eventually became playlists. And now that's what we're looking at. Only the labels are calling them compilation albums because they're more label-centric, label-specific, than they are artist-specific. So look for that new trend, especially on Spotify. Basically, they're label-specific playlists that the labels are calling compilation albums. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Okay, so a lot of you have asked about my podcasting setup. And I think I might have done a podcast a few years ago about this. But that being said, there are some differences. So... Let's cover them now. So I'm speaking to you right now over a Shure SM7B, and that goes into a Royer D-Booster. I used to have a cloud lifter, but the D-Booster just sounds a little better. There's a little bit more clarity on the top end and a little more girth on the bottom end. It just adds something that I couldn't get any other way. That's fed into a Golden Age Pre-73 Neve 1073 clone preamp. I don't even remember when or where I got this. I like it though. I like the sound of it. At some point I may change probably to a Rupert Neve Designs channel strip. Anyway, from the Golden Age mic pre, it then goes into the line-in of an Apollo Twin Mark II. In the Apollo Twin, there's an LA-2A plug-in that's on the input. Now, to be honest with you, 
I'm not sure about the way this sounds. It doesn't work the way I expect the real LA-2A to work. But that being said, it's there and it's not too noisy, so I use it. The output of that goes into an iMac. It's a relatively new one. It's the latest version. It's a 4.26 gigahertz iMac with an i7 processor and 24 gigabytes of RAM. There's also a second 24-inch monitor that I have. So basically what will happen is with Pro Tools, which is recording everything, one side has the edit window and the other side has the mix window. Now the way I record the interviews, 90% of the time is via Skype or by phone. And when I talk to someone via phone, it's actually via Skype connection, so I can easily record it via Pro Tools. Occasionally, I'll go out and do something live. I'm not crazy about doing that. To be honest with you, this is a lot easier all the way around. And many times I get a better recording. That being said, sometimes because of Skype problems or just because the person I'm talking to is in a room that's boingy and reflective, it just doesn't sound good, I have to treat it usually with RxD reverb and that gets rid of it. Now when it comes to actually doing post, there's a lot going on. Every channel has a FabFilter Pro C2 compressor on it. Not doing a lot, just touching it a little bit. Nine times out of 10, the interview via Skype or phone requires some extra treatment. This usually comes from a FabFilter Pro Q3, and I have a preset, especially for phone interviews. It compensates for the way it sounds. As a DSer, I use a Waves F6 RTA. It's strictly set as a compressor, a multi-band compressor, and there's usually at least three bands and sometimes four. Now, every channel has a noise gate on it. It's the Pro Tools D3 Expander Gate. Again, not doing a whole lot. Usually the range is somewhere around minus 20 or so. So it just knocks down any background noise, cleans everything up, and for the most part, it's pretty transparent. Finally, when it comes to the Master Bus, there's a FabFilter Pro L2. And what that'll do is that'll make sure that the LUFS level which I monitor through the plugin, is coming in at around minus 16 LUFs. That's kind of a standard for podcasts, and it's a standard for a lot of internet delivery. And that's where we come in here too, as well. How much editing do I do? Well, quite a bit, actually. I try to make everyone sound great. And what that means is, if there's someone that's pausing a lot or doing a lot of ahs or ums, I do try to get rid of at least some of them so the flow is better. That being said, I never do any editorial editing, so what you hear is what I heard when we recorded it. Now the output of that then goes into a pair of Amphion 118s. They're passive monitors and they're powered with an Amphion 500, which is 500 watts a channel. Yeah, I know, it kind of bucks the trend of using powered monitors, but I really love the way these sound. They sound a lot bigger from what they are, but they're true. Everything I hear is true, and also the frequency response tends to be pretty much the same at different levels. Finally, the last thing is, when I have to use headphones during recording, I'll use a pair of Audio-Technica MX50Xs. I also have a pair of Sennheiser HD650s. I don't use all that much because they're open-backed. 
and it doesn't necessarily work if I have an open mic. So that's my signal path. That's my recording path, my playback path. That's what you're hearing when you're listening now. My guest today is Jason Brennan, who's a re-recording mixer, supervising sound editor, and sound designer with numerous feature film and television credits for Warner Brothers. His 10 years of experience in music production and engineering gives him a unique outlook on television audio. Jason has always been on the cutting edge of the latest technology. He uses his experiences to develop workflows that deliver the best sound experience and goes beyond the standard sound effects library for the right sound, even if it means traveling to record it. During the interview, we spoke about what's changed in audio post in the last five years, the biggest problem that dialogue editors face, aligning phase on boom and lav mics, and much more. I spoke with Jason via phone from a studio not too far from the Warner Brothers main lot. Tell me about the work that you've been doing and how things have changed between, well, you know, let's say five years ago and now. Um, I think, well, like five years ago, I think I was doing, you know, I would have a kind of a, a staggering thing because I was doing the Fosters and that kind of came usually like beginning of November and would go to like March and then start up in May and go through the summer. So it always kind of kept my summer busy. And then with some of the network shows, they're usually starting up in September. And so they would kind of overlap, which was, which was, which was great. Um, and then I was ended up doing a show over at Universal and they all just started to stack up on top of each other. So at one point I was doing three shows at the same time um, and just working through the, um, the schedules and trying, because obviously the clients aren't going to adjust their schedule to meet one of my other clients' schedules. So I have to make it work within all of them. Sometimes need some, a little bit of help, have somebody cover for me or something like that. And, you know, the networks, I think, are kind of trying to figure out what, what they should be doing in terms of content shows. So the network activity comes and goes. I've noticed over the past couple of years, there being a lot less pilots on the lots um, because there's, the lots are just, they're so full with Netflix shows, Amazon shows, Hulu shows. And, and other things. So it's just, it's just weird. And it's just one of those times where, you know, like now the, the show that I was on for ABC splitting up together, got canceled. And then I was left with no pilot and nothing coming up. So just kind of hunting around and letting people know, Hey, I'm available. Yeah. You would think the fact that because there's so many more distributors now, so many more production companies that there'd be a lot more work. Exactly. I mean, and, and it's, you know, it kind of comes and goes, and and it's 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 it is it is a bit strange, and it, you know, I don't know how the lots deal with when they're you know trying to quote unquote you know sell a, a supervisor or a team or or whatever, and how much work they really do. So I'm you know basically out there um, you know knocking on doors, you know talking to other you know supervisors and, and friends, saying hey you know. Anything comes up, I'm available. And, you know, so it kind of gets through and, and, you know, so like the past, you know, few months I've been, been more just doing dialogue editing than supervising, which is fine because I don't mind working. What do you prefer? And, uh, supervising. I mean, I, if I'm doing one show and the schedule is 
you know, we're not trying to get like three shows done in, in a week, um, in a week's time. I'll cut the dialogue as well as supervise it because I know how to lay it out. Um, I know how the mixer's going to treat it. I can, you know, do a little bit more with, you know, noise reduction. I can double cut, you know, cutting boom and lav. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'll, I take the time to go through and find alts for a clunk on a line and, and things like that. And, and so it just, it just, it's a lot much of a smoother flow. Um, you know, dialogue editing is, is, is great. And, and everyone who I've turned to turn all my stuff into, um, this, you know, past few months, I've all been loving it. So it's, um, it's good to keep me, busy, I guess, but supervising gets me out of the house. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, you get stuck in a room all day and, uh, it can, it can drive you a little batty. Well, that said, I know that dialogue editing has changed pretty drastically recently, just from the standpoint that everybody is an indie and you're not reporting to a, a place to work on their gear or anything anymore. How about supervising? Has that changed? Um, no, it's pretty much the same. Um, at least what I've, what, what, what I found, um, some, some facilities might be a little more hands-on with your, your supervising and, and, and things like that, where this is like Warner brothers or universal, just like, you know what you're doing the client, as long as, as long as you're within the budget and if there's any overages, you let us know, they'll let you just do what you want. Um, and you know, I mean, I tend to, when I supervise, I, I tend to go through all of the mics on my own just to see if there's anything that's cleaner that can be used. And then I'll go through and cut bolts and send them to my dialogue editor. Um, so that that's covered. Although, you know, in some respects, some of the dialogue editors always present the original with the clunk in it rather than presenting the alt, which doesn't have the clunk, you know, it, it seems a little backwards to me because it's like, let's present it to them clean. And if they want to go back to the original with the clunk, then we'll just unmute the region. Yeah. So, I mean, dialogue editing has, has, hasn't changed as much in terms of the actual process and what, like, these older people are doing. And I know we talked about, you know, doing uh, a me and uh, my, other, my previous protege were going to write a book on with just a different approach. But... You know, you think you had mentioned like doing a video or something like that, but we'll have to get into that at another point in time. <laughs> How different is that approach from the way it's normally done? It, it's very different in, in a lot of ways. It's it's just I don't want to go too much into it because I don't want to give 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 away all all the secrets. And then it's like, oh, you know, and it's it's just it's it's it. I think of it like this. It's just it's it's an it's an approach. You know, no, normally with you know um, you know a lot of dialogue editors say. They don't really kind of understand. I like to call it like I, I when I deliver a show, you know, dialogue wise, it's mixer friendly because the mixer is going to take a look at it. They're going to see the organization because from me being, you know, um, a mixer or re-recording mixer as well, I kind of understand the workflow. And I don't think a lot of the dialogue editors really understand it. So it kind of gets a little jumbled. You know, they, they overthink things. They don't. I mean, I'll say one thing. The one thing I do is I like to run my dialogue through, uh, you know, a light dialogue chain that kind of emulates how it's going to be on the stage. That don't go too crazy, you know, just a little four to one, you know, compression, you know, a lot. Just kind of bring the level up so I can hear things clearer. 
mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> in my room. I don't like mixing with head. I don't like editing with headphones. Just it's feels way to you know, that sound where it's like you put your hands, cup them over your 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 ears. It just feels weird. Okay, so what you're saying then is you're monitoring with a signal chain that's similar to what's going to be used on stage, but that's not what you're giving them. No, no. So it's like if you know when you dialogue from the minute it hits uh, the channel strip, if it's virtual or on an actual real console, which there aren't many more, many of those these days. First thing it's going to hit is compressor to bring the level up because you know it will go into another issue that I've you know, been dealing with for the past couple of years is a lot of these production sound mixers don't, I don't think they know how to calibrate their digital gear any, as, as opposed to when they calibrated analog recorders because they're setting their top level at minus 20. And rather than that being that you got, still got 20 more dB, it's like make your, make your peak at minus 10. So I get, booms and lobs and, and even the mix tracks that, that go to the, the picture editors that you have to, you know, the mix tracks, you have to boost 12 dB and the, the boom and, and loss traps, you have, you literally have to boost between 20 and 30 dB just to even get a signal, which, you know, it's so close to the noise floor, it just brings up all the noise. Yeah. Wow. And so it's been a struggle. And luckily on this lot, in the last show I supervised and cut, I was able to contact the um, production sound mixer and talk to him about the levels because the previous season was really bad. And he was able to send me some test, some test files. And I was like, Hey, give me, you know, maybe four or five more DB. So he had adjusted to get those levels and everything came in a lot better. It actually made it a lot easier for me to cut, to double cut the show. But that being said, why do production mixers do that? Is it just a fear of overloading? There is a fear of overloading, I think. And I also think, I think there's a part, there's some of them who are really good. The guy that I worked with on the first three seasons of Shameless, he would always come to the room and we would talk and he's like one of the best in town now. And I I just think a lot of them don't understand the equipment as well, or they're really concentrating on trying to get the mix track to be right. And because that's what the picture editors use. But the mix tracks are they're 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 tied. You got boom and loss in there, so you can't really if you want a little more body, it's just it's just more work. When you've got two channels, you've got a boom and a loss, you need a little more clarity, you can turn up the loss. Want a little more body, turn up the boom. It's I you know, fear and I just think a lack of knowledge, I, I think is, is part of it. Okay. So you get the boom and the lav tracks. Don't you have phase cancellation to worry about? No. Uh, there's a great, you, you, you put them in phase. You put them in phase. There's a great plugin called Auto Align Post. Um, it's like 300 bucks, but you that really brilliant plugin. It'll analyze whatever channel, you know, depending on, you know, the strength of one or the other channel, I'll pick is basically the one to model the phase or set the phase to, like if it's the boom that I like, I'll set that one to be the primary analysis and then the lav will align. They'll they will align together. Wow! So it's, it's like a little side chain of input. It's it, it's great. It works fast. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of time because it's not blanket. Like you can just highlight everything and 
put everything in phase because, you know, maybe if the boom is, is, is a little off mic, but has that nice little room sound to it, you're going to want to use the lav as the, the, the primary source. So you, just, you have to kind of look at what you're doing rather than just kind of trusting it to do everything. Because occasionally it'll get out. Then just redo it. How much cleanup do you have to do? On which aspect of, like, are you talking about, like, noise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on it depends on the dialogue mixer. Some some dialogue mixers, and I understand this because a lot of dialogue editors are just a little bit too extreme with like RX, you know, uh, the isotope RX, and so they, they they push it too clean, and it just takes all the life out. So some of them just like don't do anything. Others that trust somebody to do a little bit more um, because they know they know what they're doing. I do quite a bit. Um, there's there's all these pop sticks, background crew noise, dolly creaks that you've got to clean out very still for, you know, to, to just kind of have the same room tone and you just paste it over top of the dolly creaks or sometimes if it's just too noisy outside that it's a standard, just kind of, it's, it's a loud tone, but it's not all over the place. I usually will leave that for the dialogue mixer to use the cedar on because it, it, you know, it's kind of one of those things that you just, you hear it, it's like, yeah, you know, let me, let me try it. And I always leave the original unprocessed tracks for them if, if, if they feel like, you know, it's a little too much. Let me go back and let me run it through my cedar or through something else. So it, you know, it varies. There's some shows that you're on set for most of the time, so it ends up, you know, not being too noisy. You just mentioned cedar. I haven't heard that in a long time. I didn't even realize they're still around. Yeah, there's a lot of people that still like them just because it was it has been a <clears throat> a go-to. Um, it, it does it does you know pretty amazing. Um, but I know there's some people that you know studios five thousand dollar plug-in. Yeah. So um, it's pretty expensive. <laughs> you know, I know some people use the WNS, the W43 from Waves. You know, there's some other things with. Again, too, with RX, you can do a lot with RX, but it's, you still have to take the time to the, do the processing where, you know, Cedar, you can just run live. And with the plugins, too, you can have to Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, so, but, you know, I, that's like, you know, since the last time we, we, we talked, I, you know, I think I've, I went a little bit into plugin overload, overload just because, you know, like, you never know what you're going to need for anything in particular. And there's always like annual waves, WNAP or something like that. The, the plan yeah. came up and Thanksgiving and it was 1300 bucks to upgrade to Mercury. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. And actually I got that and the studio tools collection. And then eventually Abbey Road stuff because a lot of that stuff is really cool. So I, I, I probably own everything now. No. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little, uh, it's a little obscene. Easy to get into plug-in overload. Just with waves. Yeah. It'll be something like I had to do this when I was doing this show called Trial and Error with John Lithgow. Um, they were they went back to like an old, um, like it was like a videotape uh, interview from like 1987. They won kind of a, you know, a wobble or what's a wild flutter kind of, you know, thing and little glitches that you would see with playing back old tape. And so I ended up using... I ended up using um, uh, the, the Abbey Road reel-to-reel, um, -reel, a uh, Sound Toys, 
I think it was uh, uh, that little mini pitch there, the Alter Boy one, and uh, H3000 plug-in to create this effect. And I spent a good day going through a whole bunch of different stuff just to kind of get that sort of sound. And I had like four different versions too. Doesn't Isotope have a plug-in for that? Yeah, but it, I mean, not like to get a, that kind of classic wow and flutter sort of thing, I didn't find anything in there that was really, I mean, yeah, it kind of had, you know, that sort of thing, but it didn't really, didn't feel old. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, the, the smartest thing I probably could have done is, if I still have any, I probably should have searched through old VCR tapes. I saw the VCR, you know, recorded it onto an old tape and <laughs> record the output of it. Yeah, yeah, right. But it's like digging things out, searching for stuff when you only have, you know, a day to kind of create something. So it ended up working out really well. I, I'll find little things, you know, here and there that I like from different companies. Um, yeah, the plug-in alliance stuff, they would, they, they would come out with something and it would be like, oh, it's only 29 bucks. <laughs> sure. And then I ended up getting that, that whatever you call it, the, the heavy hitters coupon every month. It was like $75 and there'd be a sale and I would get like two more for like 70 bucks. And now they do, they offered me like 150 bucks subscription for a year and you get everything. They've got some cool stuff. You know, they just came out with the focus, right? Console. It, it's there if I need it. That's, I guess that's the point. What's the biggest problem that a dialogue editor faces? I guess the the biggest problem would be having enough time to really go back through the show, listening, listening to it in an environment that is going to represent the dialogue. Well, because you know, you can turn your, your, your headphones up, but you know, when something's compressed, you start to hear lower, you know, things, you, you kind of bring it all together so you can hear everything in between, everything lower, better, everything higher, better. And I don't think a lot of people just by turning up their, their headphones, really hear all of those things. Depending on the dialogue mixer, it, it's just trying to get all the angles, different different angles to work because, you know, they'll go from, you know, one shot to the next and from take one to take six, the mic has moved three different times. And so it sounds different. Mm, yeah. So just getting those to, 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 to match um, and making it into um, a sensible sort of organization in Pro Tools. Well, I, I just think that's just the one thing that a lot of dialogue, dialogue editors don't understand is, is you know, making it mixer-friendly so that, you know, you're, you're, you're not mixing on track one and track six at the same time. You know, so you go from angle one on track one to angle two on track six to angle three on track four. So you see how the disorganization it is rather than going one, two, three and stair stepping it. Yeah. That, I see that a lot. I'm amazed that a dialogue editor would not have, would not be cognizant of what a mixer needs. It's, it's really, it, it is a little, it is a little strange, but I think it, you know, they don't spend any time on the stage and they're, they're not aware of their process of, of, of mixing. You know, they're if dialogue editor. They're just, they're like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, they're just kind of going through each thing. And as long as it plays back fine, they're not really thinking about where, where faders are. I mean, if they've even never touched a fader. I mean, there are people that, you know, like me who 
supervised cut dialogue, but there are a lot of um, you know, dialogue editors out there, um, and it may be changing more, but from what I've seen, um, that just don't understand anything outside of their room. You know, they don't have a lot of time to go sit on the stage. Mm. Yeah. You know, where I've, you know, I spent, you know, 15 years in, you know, the, the effects chair before I moved to dialogue. So I got to see it all. The same, same sort of thing kind of happens too with um, some effects editors. Uh, they, they, they're not thinking in the logical, you know, sort of, of way. So, you know, with my effects editor, he knows, because I've trained him how to deliver things to me when I was mixing um, Shameless. So it, it ended up being a better, you know, fit when he understood my process rather than just what my layout was. Why did you switch from effects to dialogue? Well, it's just a natural sort of progression, I think. Um, you know, I wanted to, you know, it's the lead chair. You know, it's kind of the, the lead the lead mixer. And from, you know, supervising, it just made more sense. Dialogue and music are the the two biggest things that the clients pay attention to. And I really wanted to get those, you know, sounding, you know, sounding better. And I knew what I could, if I had a mixing partner, I knew how to direct them on what we needed to do in terms of, uh, Foley sound or, uh, you know, uh, just how we're going to go about a certain approach to, um, you know, a little bit of the sound design aspects of it. How much does your music background come into it? I, I think it comes in quite a lot, just in terms of reverbs, uh, mixing, um, mixing, you know, the, the music, getting the balance. Um, I mean, it comes definitely, definitely comes into into play when um, directing talent for ADR or you know group backgrounds, just because you know you you kind of know how to get a performance out of somebody. You, you know, uh, you sat in a in a session and you're recording vocals, and you do, hey, let's do a little bit of something different. It's your ear goes there. A lot of people in post are, are previous previous from you know music either playing, so that some people, a lot of people have musical ears. Yeah, it seems that way. Seems like everybody I talk to that is in that part of the business has come from music. Yeah, you know, I think too, it just. Music was such a small, uh, if you overall, such a smaller part of the entertainment industry. Even though it seems like it, it's very big, but film is just huge in comparison. It dwarfs music by a mile. You know that. I mean, I don't even know if record companies really even make money anymore. Well, they do, and they make plenty. <laughs> Everybody else. It's funny because when I first moved to California. I was told by somebody who was sort of a mentor that the hierarchy was always music, television, film. And that's the way your career should go. Of course, I never followed that. I probably should have. <laughs> oh, so you mean you, like the hierarchy meaning that film is at the top, top, the top or at the bottom? Well, no, it's at the top in terms of making money and the deep pockets involved. Yeah, you know, and... It's funny because when we first started, you know, when you first started sort of mentoring me and I was learning things from you, you know, the music business hadn't really hit that Napster thing yet. Yeah. And I think it was like 2002 when they started firing, 
you know, their entire ADR departments. Um, and budgets went from $250,000 down to $25,000. And it was kind of at that point, you know, it was again with, you know, Richard at Euphonics at the time. He was like, yeah, um, there's this company. And I already knew the System 5, so it just it made sense. <laughs> and then, of course, I made more money. Yeah, right. Pockets are deeper. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you can charge more. I mean, a lot of these, I mean, some of these stages charge, you know, um, $600 an hour. That doesn't seem to have changed for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's gone up. You know, it goes up a little bit, you know, here and there. You know, but, I, you know, I remember when I was at this place, you know, and I think a, a lockout for 12 hours was two grand, and it's less than $200 an hour. Yeah, for music, the price really hasn't changed in 25 years. I mean, granted, you'd have to still pay the engineer separately. So yeah. that would bring up the cost, you know, to maybe, you know, 4500 depending on the engineer. So, and then, you know, uh, I mean, the room came with an assistant. So still, you know, if, even if there were, if it was, you know, 5000 a day, that's, um, that's still pretty, it's, I mean, I guess it's, this depends, you know, I mean, I got off topic. <laughs> well, you know, before you were talking about how the mic could change for each different take and then you have to match them. When you're matching, is that a matter of EQ? Well, that's something to mix for, from a mixing point of view. Yeah. It'll, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a bit of an EQ thing, you know, from, you know, the edit, editorial standpoint, it's just hearing there's a difference because you're not going to be EQing from one line to the next on the same track. You're going to want to use a different, you're going to want to use a different EQ. You know, if, if, if the first line is a little tubby and you take a little bit out, but the, um, the second line is a little dull and you're going to want to bring up the brightness of it. You're going to need two different EQs and trying to EQ it as they're crossing over each other. is just too much work. Mm, right. Now, of course there's dynamic EQs these days, but even so that's not foolproof either. Yeah. I mean, I think the dynamic EQs are really cool. Um, you know, it really depends on how your, your, your mixing style. It's like, I, I like to have a lot of different EQs because some of them sound different. Um, some of them, are very surgical, um, you know, there's amounts of compression, you know, too. And with dynamic EQ, if you're, if you're boosting or cutting something and it's got dynamics in it, it could change how the, the background noise is being presented. So you might hear it more. It might, I might pump. I haven't really experimented much with it in, in terms of a post situation, just because I've got a, a chain that I like, um, but, you know, it might be something I might look into just seeing how, how much it affects production dialogue. And maybe on AER. You know, there's a new category of plugins that are intelligent, and I think that auto-align probably falls into that. Right. But that being said, things like Nectar, are, are they useful to you? Do you see things that are mm, post-centric? that are more in the intelligence side? Um, yeah, but again, it's just one of those things. I haven't gotten that much into experimenting with it on the mix side just because I've, I've had my template for as long as I, I've had, and I kind of know, you know, how I kind of know how it works. I probably should take some time. Um, part of the, I think part of the issue is when it comes to a lot of these newer plugins, um, a lot of these, post-production stages have their set plugins that they like that 
are in all the rooms so that if you go from one room to the other, you can, um, you know, the, the, it's, it, the license already lives there. So they don't have to keep buying different licenses. And with, I mean, I don't know if you've, you've known all about this whole um, uh, motion picture uh, sort of standard that the, the new studios are having to deal with because there was a post-production place called Larson Sound that had, uh, I, I forget, I think it was, was it maybe Daredevil or one of their shows, Orange is the New Black, was stolen off their server. And this hacking group said, if you don't pay us $250,000, we're going to release it. Wow. And that was a Netflix show. And so a lot of the, um, uh, the Motion Picture Association decided that, okay, we're going to create this, a new standard that these studios have to follow. And it, like all of the, the assistants are locked in. It's like you can't even get to them unless you've got a key card. So everything has to be done you know, through Aspera or um, another, everything has to be encrypted. Hard drives have to, like with this one show, I'm using encrypted hard drives. Wow. You know, where you have to type in a code just to even access the hard drive because if the, the hard drives get gets lost and there's a show that hasn't been released and there's the picture right on the drive, then anybody can do whatever they want with it. So it, it's gotten a lot more stringent to the point where some, if, if the Macs live in the room, then they hot glue all the ports. <laughs> you can't plug in an external drive. I love it. <laughs> I know. It, it, it's a little overreactive, I think. You know, I understand that there are, there are some, you know, companies like Marvel and, um, you know, Apple certainly don't, won't, won't allow anything off-site. Um, and the biggest, the biggest issue is, is the picture. I mean, the audio doesn't really... I mean, what, what good is the audio? I mean, if you've got... 60 gigs worth of dailies. What does that give you? <laughs> yeah, sure. The picture, that's the one that they want. You know, especially if the, the, the guide tracks are, are, even if it's not mixed uh, and has all the professional sound done, it's still a valuable thing. And so the, the biggest place and the biggest holes are at the VFX houses and the layback houses. Yeah. They're the ones that are dealing with the picture. You know, the, us lowly audio guys, you know, it's, it's all we, we, we get, uh, you know, an offline picture that doesn't even have all the final VFX on it. So we're, the, we're less likely to, to be the ones to ever, you know, leak something like that. Mm. I mean, when, when walking dead had that big poll, who did Negan kill thing? They did that at Warner Brothers. We didn't have any of those standards at the time and nothing got leaked. I mean, people could have just even posted it on the forum and nobody did because we, we respect our clients. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. But, you know, we don't want that stuff to get leaked out there. Okay, Jason, last question. Yeah. What are the challenges that you're facing? Meaning that, you know, you look into the future and you see things that are about to happen or things that you think that will happen. What, what are those? Well, I think um, the one, well, one thing was technology is, you know, is growing exponentially. Uh, I think when I first started to really put my room together. Um, I had kind of already had, had thought that question there because at a lot of these facilities, they're, they're not spending money on the editorial rooms because the stages are the, where they make the money. So these editorial rooms are running on really old, old systems and they're really slow and they're really cumbersome to edit. If you want to process something, 
you can literally, if I smoked, I quit smoking like four years ago, but I could literally go out, have a cigarette, and come back in, and it would still be processing. <laughs> so I, I think going forward in the future, it's how, how am I going to expand? You know, Apple just came out with their new Mac Pro, which starts at like $6,000. Yeah. You know, and I, that that's going to be one of those things where I've got a, a mid, the last of the um, 12 core cheese graters, as they call them. Yeah. Actually, I have two now. And when they didn't come out with um, this new Mac Pro last year, I was like, okay, there's got to be a way I can expand this thing because, you know, the Magma chassis are still $2,000, you know, to go PCI Express to the chassis. I was like, it's just way too much money. You know, I don't really need seven cards. You know, maybe I would, but I, so I finally found this company. And what I did was I, I bought a metal compatible graphics card to put in this, this little expansion chassis all for about like 1300 bucks. Um, and now I've got five outputs. I got one HDMI that goes directly to my, my picture monitor and then dual port for my other mon my other monitors. And then I added USB three, which is much better than firewire, Put some USB 3.1, uh, Hubs in, and now I just run everything off of uh, USB. Interesting. So the, it's it's really the technology that where's the technology going to go, and where uh, where am I going to upgrade? You know, is it going to be five one? My room's a little too small for five one, but there's a you know a consideration of maybe a small set of speakers in here. Yeah, that would be one of those things I would I'd probably be asking you about because I don't think upgrading the set to five point one would be a good thing to do because it's adding two more of those units, but maybe getting a grace instead. You know, when I bought the Atlas set, they, the grace only had a two channel and I didn't like the dangerous one at all. And so now grace has a, like, I think it's a 7.1 unit. I think it's like four grand, but it will cost me more than four grand just to upgrade the Atlas set. I love that thing, but so that's that's that. Those are some things that I'm thinking of in for future. If I, if I move or if I'm you know able to buy a house here, um, would I go five one there? Would I move the studio to uh, another place? Uh, open up a mix room. These are some of the things. Would I leave Los Angeles? I mean, then do everything remotely. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking. You know, Nashville's a great place to invest, and you know get out of LA, move to Nashville, work out in a house. Yeah, sure. Heck of a lot cheaper to buy a house there. You get twice as much. Yeah, no kidding. So that's, that's, that's my future thought is, am I going to be here in 10 years or am I going to try to do it remotely? Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or Go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.